You're listening to The Raven and the Writing Desk, the weekly podcast about the writings of Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. This is episode 126. Hello there, Metamorphs. Welcome back to The Raven and the Writing Desk. I am Chris Lester, the creator and head author of the Metamorph City Story Universe. You can find more of my work at chrislester.org and metamorphcity.com. Each week, I am your guide into worlds of fantasy and wonder. So let's get started with this week's story. Today I'm bringing you the first part of the Metamore City story, Make Believe. This is the only story in the Urban Legends collection that was not written by me. It was penned by Brian Watson, my close friend and the voice actor who played Artax and Brian Summers in the Metamore City podcast. After Artax appeared in Making the Cut, Brian got very interested in the old wizard as a character, so he got permission from me to write a story from Artax's perspective. In the process of researching and writing this story, Brian developed several key elements of Artax's character, which would go on to play a pivotal role in Things Unseen. Make Believe first aired in special episodes 3 and 4 of the Metamore City podcast, which ran during the summer of 2008, when I was busy moving from Michigan to California. You're about to hear my all-new solo read of this story, which will appear in the audiobook version of Urban Legends. The story is about 9,300 words, so I'm dividing it into three parts. I hope you enjoy it. Make-Believe A Tale of Metamore City Written by Brian Watson Read by Chris Lester Part 1 For as a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. From the Canticle of Eli, Book of Proverbs, Chapter 23, Verse 7 A dozen and a half young faces stare at me, waiting. Some of them are nervous, some angry, and one or two of them have the good sense to look ashamed. But on the whole, most of them simply look bored. One face, however, glares back at me with hatred, loathing, and contempt. I know his type. There's one in every one of these classes, it seems, and the sooner I disabuse him of the notion of his own importance in the grand scheme of things, the better. But as usual, I let him make the first move. Just because they're criminals doesn't mean I have to be a hard-ass. You all know why you're here, I say, as I pace slowly in front of them, making eye contact with each student. You've broken the law and removed your restraining collars. You've used your magical talents without registering yourselves with the Bureau of Magic Regulation. These laws have a purpose, not the least of which is preventing some overambitious group of youngsters from unleashing a second curse upon the city. However, since none of you have any previous criminal convictions, and since in the last several months you've all shown at least some willingness to work with the system instead of against it, You've been sent to me. My name is Artax, but for the next year you will simply be addressing me as Teacher. I allow my pacing to lead me a little farther up towards the front of the room. That way, when I stop, turn, and fix my eyes on the one student sitting in the middle of the back row, not coincidentally the one with the burning hatred in his eyes, they all feel my gaze. 
But know this, I say, after a pause. You have escaped nothing. Most of you will be wishing you'd opted to finish out your sentences before I'm through with you. I am a harsh teacher. I do not tolerate foolishness, and I will not hesitate to make an example of any one of you, should you step out of line. But, before you contact your caseworkers and ask to go back to your detention facilities, know this. This is your one chance, your only chance, at ever using your magical talents again. You walk out of here, and you walk into a life of mediocrity. You will be choosing a life where you'll be no greater than anybody else. And in fact, you will be less than a great many. Are there any questions? Silence. (laughs) There's always silence at first. Very good, I say. Then let us begin. At least, that's how it usually goes. This time. This time I should have known better. It was different. I... I should have known. Saturdays are always busy in the morning. People are in a good mood. They've just been paid. They didn't have to get up to some shrill electronic device. And most of them get to look forward to the same thing the next day. Of course... Those of us who make our income by catering to the public whims don't get to indulge in such luxuries. The word weekend is something of a cuss word to those people who work in retail and food service, and if the rest of the world gave us much thought, then perhaps they'd treat us a bit differently. But then I can't really complain. While my shop is open to the public, the merchandise I sell is of such a specialized nature that most people actually do treat me as if I know what I'm talking about which I do. Those who ignore me, or the instructions that come with each and every bit of merchandise I sell, do so at their own risk. And if you wonder how it is that I can work in a field where people are overworked, underpaid, and generally overlooked by the very people who depend on their services, while still maintaining at least some shred of my sanity, I'll just direct you to look at the sign over the register that says, Because I'm a wizard, that's how. Despite the fact that practitioners of magic have been operating in the open for longer than history has been written, despite the fact that every single person in the city is touched one way or another by some powerful bit of magic daily, people still view wizards and sorcerers as great men and women of mystery. Despite the fact that by high school, even a student without any magical abilities will have been taught the laws and limitations of magic, people still think that mages can do anything. To be sure, we can do more than most, but we still have our limitations. One of mine is dealing with clueless people. I close early on Saturdays, as my afternoons and evenings are tied up in something of a community service project that I started some years ago when I first came to the city. I'm usually happy to deal with people. Well, I'm willing to, at least. But one day each year sees a new beginning to that project. On those days, I always seem to have someone who doesn't know what the words closing early mean. Okay, I've got like two major problems, the young woman said to me. First, like my mother is totally allergic to my cat and she can't visit. I love her, but I don't want to get rid of Arlai. Arlai being your cat, not your mother, I presume, I said, 
Her face went blank for a moment. Then the connection was made. Oh, yeah, totally. Well, a simple histamine blocker from your local pharmacy is probably your best bet. But if you're set on using a magical remedy, you could try this little number. I handed her a small vial made of blue glass. It's essentially a magical histamine blocker, but there's also a mild mental suppressant that helps the taker relax and lets the medicine work more quickly. It's a bit more costly than its pharmacological cousin, but some people prefer it. Great, she said, taking the vial from me. This is perfect. She began to make her way to the register. I believe you said there were two problems. She paused and seemed to be trying to remember if she had, in fact, said as much. It was something like waiting for a lift, watching the numbers light up one by one as the car slowly approaches your floor. Oh, right! Okay, so, like, my boyfriend and I have been having some major trust issues for a while now. I won't bore you with the details. I said a small prayer of thanks to as many gods as I could think of on the spot. But I was told that there were potions that could give mundane humans low levels of telepathy. For just a second, I started to wonder what her game was. Oh, sweet! Are these unicorns made of real silver? She held one up before me, her eyes wide like a child who's just discovered that they have a gift waiting for them. Some of them are, I said. Others are just silver-plated. Many Kitchlanders use them in ceremonial wedding spells. Now, the potions you'd be looking for are over here. I handed her another vial, making certain to grab one of the green ones. When she made to take it from me, I pulled it away a little. Two things first, Miss. She looked at me blankly for another half-second. Oh, Caitlin, she said. We weren't winning any academic scholarships in school, were we? Out loud, I said. Right then, Miss Caitlin. As I said, there are two things you must know before I can let you purchase these two potions. The first is that this potion, I held up the green vial, is a somewhat modified version of Shimmer. That's a mild sigh enhancer. This is not like a potion that will mimic some aspect of the curse, help you sleep, or cure a case of the sniffles. This is dangerous magic here. It allows you to see into places where most people wouldn't wish to go. This will temporarily open a door that most people would just as soon leave closed if they were aware that it was there. The second, and most important, is that these potions must never be mixed. I know that one is for you and one for your mother, but each of these vials contains multiple doses, and should somebody using one get it into their head to use the other, the consequences would be very serious indeed. For once, she showed some wisdom, swallowed, then nodded. I let her have the second vial. Now, if there isn't anything else, we do close early on Saturdays. Unless you'd still like one of these unicorns. What I can't believe is that you talked her into one of the imported models, Levinson said. I didn't talk her into anything. I said, I merely mentioned that these particular models were made in the very land where they came into use in the first place. She convinced herself to buy it. Whatever you say, Artax. And while we're on the subject of what was going on inside my shop, just what were you doing out there? 
Somebody could have noticed you. He snorted, though I'm not really sure how he did it. Oh, please, he said. You think I can't smell a tape from two clicks away? I managed to stay out of Shirabi's way the entire time that she was here, didn't I? I sat down. That's true, though she was mostly confined to one room during her tenure here. But she's still a teep, he said. Even if her telepathy is pretty pathetic, she'd have a hard time missing me. If nothing else, she or one of the other women you brought in here could have noticed you talking to your plants. I looked up at the succulent asphodelaceae plants that grew in their pots all around my shop and its various rooms. They're unassuming plants, and most people don't notice that they're in nearly every room. They could at that, I said. But since they all think I'm mad anyway, I think it could just add to the mystery that is me. So, how come those ladies never come around anymore? I'd figure Danny at least would feel some affection for all the help you gave her. I don't think that Mr. Summers likes me very much, I said, starting to dig through my desk drawers for the things I'd need for the upcoming classes. You're probably right, Levinson said. But then I know his type. He's not really a fighter. Not at heart. He'd rather find another way of resolving conflicts. It's one of his more admirable traits. I began looking over the two lists of names, scrying a bit into each one's life. Scrying is a useful talent. If a person learns how, they can look at a person, a formula, a building, anything really, and see into its future, its past, its potential. That said, scrying is a lot like wiggling your ears. It's easy if you know how to do it. It's also not perfect. <sighs> Strike that. It may well be perfect. Perhaps it's just that people aren't. I've been scrying for as long as I can remember. Nobody taught me. I've just always known how. Much like how some people naturally know how to carry a tune, or how to play an instrument without having taken any lessons. It gives me what some might call an unfair advantage in life. But when people grow up how I grew up, they'll tell you that they grab hold of every advantage they can get. This is mine, and I use it. Though, unfortunately, not all of the time. Levinson wasn't done, though. My point, Artax, he said, is that nobody but you feels at home here. This is a place of business, I said. It is not a condominium. You know damn well I'm not talking about that. Even your best, most frequent and reliable customers usher themselves out of here as soon as they have what they came in for. Nobody lingers. Nobody chats. Do you even have any friends? I turned once again to face the plant, though it really was pointless to do so. A being of pure thought could see me just as well if I were facing one direction as any other. Of course I have friends, I said. Really? If he'd had a body, he'd have been leaning it against the wall with his arms folded across his chest. Name one. I turned back to my work. I really don't see the point in this. And I don't see how you think I'd be fooled by you stalling for time. I am not stalling. I have work to do. Changing the subject, then. The end result is that you don't have an answer for my question. Miss Drowling, I said, not even bothering to look up from my work. Levinson sounded thoughtful. I might buy that. He said, after a pause, 
If you two weren't making it your personal mission to destroy the dating scene of the greater metropolitan area. For my part, it's actually a complicated form of evangelism. Shouldn't you be contemplating the nature of the universe or something? That's what we have the elf for. Why are you so anxious to be rid of me? Because I don't care for reminders of the past. Out loud, I said. I told you already. I have work to do to prepare for the new class. He sighed, although again, I'm not really sure how. Which, despite your insistence that only the players change, is a brand new group of people. Each one is different, and yet you continue to insist on treating each of them the same. You're the only one who remains the same. Maybe that's a problem. I don't see how it could be, I said. When you do, then maybe we can actually talk about this. I looked up to say something to that, though to be honest I wasn't sure exactly what I could say. But there was a subtle emptiness in the room that told me that Levinson was already gone. Each student's file had been reviewed and verified as accurate by the student in question. I have the caseworkers do this because it forms a personal connection between the person in question and their file. I could scry into their lives without this, but with the connection made, scrying is easier and more effective. Levinson doesn't believe me, but there really are patterns to every class that I get. One that presents itself every single time is one student who seems to be angry at everything. I was three-quarters of the way through the files before I found the one for this class. How do I describe to you what scrying is like? Let's say that you're looking at two people playing a game of catch. It would seem like a simple enough game to most people, but there are more variables at play than you might realize. Most of the time, one person throws the ball, and the other person catches it. Simple. But then the ball goes high, or wide, or it falls short. The ball may hit the other player in the forehead, or he may have to dive to catch it. The person trying to catch the ball may suddenly sneeze, or the person throwing may drop it. The possibility for any one of those things to happen, and dozens more like them, comes up each and every time one person does something as simple as throwing a ball to somebody else. And by scrying, you could see each and every one of them. Now imagine that you can see all of those things happening at one time. Some, the more likely outcomes, are more solid, more clear than others less likely to occur. Now imagine that by really trying, you can focus on one aspect, one outcome, and not only see how probable it is, but how it's likely to play out. That, in a nutshell, is scrying. And the big secret that gods and magic users alike don't want people to know is that nearly anybody can do it. The troublemaker for this class was one John Tunstall. I looked deeper into his life, and almost wished that I hadn't. I saw him speaking with passion and anger, rallying people, the others from his class, I realized, into some kind of action. And somehow, I knew that he was speaking about me. I saw him stalking the city streets, deliberately seeking me out. I saw him in a room of terrified people, power pouring out of upraised hands as the ceiling crumbled down around him. 
I saw him standing over my own body as it lay unmoving on the ground. I saw him dressed in the black combat fatigues of a battle mage. This one had power and a chip on his shoulder. And now he was my responsibility. Wonderful. I could have sworn that I heard a soft chuckle from the small altar to Klepnos that I maintained in the next room. Levinson is wrong. I do have one very good friend. But he shows his affection by constantly trying to get me killed. Maybe I do need to get out more often. The one final thing that you must understand about scrying is this. The future is moldable and malleable. Some things are destined to happen, yes, but most destinies are fouled up by free will. What I saw wasn't bound to happen, just the most likely outcome of a particular path. And I kept telling myself that every time I looked down another line and saw the same thing. And that's where we're going to stop for this week. Come back next time for part two, when Artax faces a challenge from one of his more difficult students. Diane Setterfield said, A good story is always more dazzling than a broken piece of truth. So, put on your polarized sunglasses and mind the glare. It's time for your weekly writing report. I was out of town last weekend, so this report is covering the last two weeks. I wrote 2,659 words over the course of 3.75 hours, for an average writing speed of 706 words per hour. I also spent 17 hours on audio recording and production, using the Pomodoro technique I talked about a few weeks ago. As of Friday night, I have gone 138 days without breaking my chain. Looking back at the month of October, I wrote a total of 12,191 words in 20 days, averaging 610 words per day. That's my fifth lowest writing total since I started this podcast. I spent 18 hours writing in October, and I also spent 26 hours on audio recording and production. Compared to September, my word count decreased by 47%, and my writing time decreased by 40%. For the month of November, I'm putting new writing on the back burner. Some of you are doing NaNoWriMo this month, but for me, it's NaNoPromo, National Novel Production Month. Specifically, this is my time to work on getting the Urban Legends audiobook ready for release on Audible. I found that I can get a lot more recording done on weekday evenings than I can on Saturday and Sunday afternoons, because, surprise, surprise, The people in my apartment building are home on the weekend, and they're doing noisy things like laundry and vacuuming. So, I'm going to focus on recording as much as I can during the week, and get Urban Legends out to market as fast as I can, so it can start making some money for me. And by the time that's done, I expect to have my comments back from beta readers on The Lost in the Least, so that will be my next project. And now, the feedback. Hey, Chris, this is Stephen from Greenville, South Carolina. Hey, um, I've never understood polygamy, or I can't get my mind around it. Why did you make the telepath live in cells like polygamy marriages? I'm just curious why you chose that. 
I've really enjoyed going through these stories a second time. And uh, thank you for doing that. Keep up the great work and congratulations on getting married. Bye-bye. Hi, Stephen. One of the things I love about science fiction and fantasy is that they offer so many wonderful opportunities to imagine how the world could be different. Sometimes our real-life cultural institutions feel so deeply ingrained in us that they seem like the only way things could be. But for the most part, they're the result of accidents of history. People are amazingly adaptable creatures, and if you put us in a situation where the incentives are different, our institutions will be different too. Science fiction has played around with different family structures for decades now. For example, in The Moon is a Harsh Mistress by Robert Heinlein, the Lunar Society evolved a bunch of new marriage systems to deal with the shortage of women in these former penal colonies. The new novel, An Excess Male by Maggie Shen King, imagines a new polyandrous marriage system arising in China's near future, as the shortage of girls created by the One China policy causes a surplus of young males. In both of these cases, multiple marriage was invented to solve the problem of a mismatch in the supply of the sexes. For the Psy Collective, the pressure they're facing isn't a shortage of women, or even a shortage of men. Rather, they have a shortage of people with strong psychic powers, and they're trying to breed more of them. The reasons for this are complicated, but they boil down to fear. The Collective is sure that the Mundanes will try to destroy them someday, and before that war happens, they want to grow their numbers as much as possible to improve their odds of winning. At the same time, though, they don't want a bunch of new low-powered telepaths that would be more of a liability than an asset in a future war. The Collective solved this problem by strictly controlling the reproduction of all of its members. Females of all power levels are clustered into breeding cells, with a single male who has a strong psychic talent the Collective wants to make more of. Other males, who have especially strong talents, are farmed out for stud service, to spread their genes among lots of breeding cells. At the opposite end of the spectrum are the low-powered males, whose talents are considered too weak to be useful. The Collective dumps these unfortunate males into bachelor cells, hoping to remove their undesirable genes from the breeding pool entirely. Clearly, this is not an ideal situation, and we see in making the cut how the system makes people unhappy. Anytime a strong central authority tries to micromanage something like human relationships, it tends to create problems. At the same time, we also see people making it work. The summer cell has struggles and conflicts, but they all love each other, and they make a pretty good family. So to answer your question, the breeding cell structure arose naturally out of thinking about the Psy Collective's goals, and how they could arrange their society to try to meet those goals. In making the cut, I took that system and explored its consequences, strengths, and weaknesses. Along the way, it gave me the opportunity to explore a number of interesting ideas with real-world implications, like what to do when your society doesn't value you as much as you value it. Great question. Thanks for asking. If you'd like to share your thoughts about the show, send your feedback in text or audio to metamorecityfeedback at gmail.com. To leave a voicemail, dial area code 641-715-3900, then enter extension 255082, followed by the pound sign. My Facebook is facebook.com slash author Chris Lester. The fan group is fans of Metamore City on Facebook. And my Twitter handle is Ethereus, E-T-H-E-R-I-U-S. If you like this show, take a minute and leave me a review on Apple Podcasts. It makes a big difference in helping people find the show. 
That's all for this week. I'll be back next time with more fiction. Until then, keep it on the bright side. This is Chris Lester, signing out. The contents of this podcast are copyright 2008 and 2017 by Brian Watson and Liminal Corvid Press. The show is released under a Creative Commons, attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. So don't change it, don't sell it, but feel free to share it all you like. For more information about this license, please visit creativecommons.org.